welcome, welcome to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I am Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. Hello, everybody. So today we're talking about the influx of mass shootings in our country and the inflation crisis. And if it means a recession is on the way, we're also talking about why Monique called out comedian D.L. Hughley during a concert and what Jada Pinkett Smith had to say about the Oscar slap. The Business of Being Black today is a round of the political and trending highlights of the week. Please welcome my Friday co-host, activist, and radio personality, Dominique DePrima. Hi, Dominique. Hi, Tammy Mack. Political analyst, Ed Sanders. Hi, Ed. Good to see you. Comedian and filmmaker, Alicia Cooper, is here. Alicia, what's up, Lily? Hey, Tammy. And the president and founder of Oleka Management Consulting, Dr. O.J. Oleka. Hi, Dr. O.J. Hey, Tammy Mack. Good to see you. Good to see everybody, everybody, everybody. Let's get started. There has been a wave of mass shootings taking place in this country. Uh, Racially motivated mass shootings at Top Supermarket in Buffalo, New York. Mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. A deadly hospital complex shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, We're well over 288 shootings for the year. Yesterday, uh, President Joe Biden delivered a speech Uh, pressing U.S. lawmakers to take action to combat gun violence. More than a week after the Uvalde massacre, officials are still avoiding questions from the media. What should the future of gun control legislation look like? Dominique. Mm. Well, it's a tough question. You know, I'm a big supporter of the Second Amendment, and I do think we have the right to bear arms. I don't understand, though, why we can't pursue those things that are widely popular with the American people that don't involve curtailing those rights, such as background checks, such as, um, you know, a ban on assault weapons. And maybe when we're looking at the numbers, what I'm seeing is that younger, uh, younger people do these school shootings between 18 to 21. So maybe we need to look at 21 uh, and older, like we do for liquor in many states, or at least restrictions for those under 21. I'm not sure that that would help in terms of uh, when your parents have guns in the home, all you have to do is go grab it and still, you know, do what you do. Uh, but I guess the policy being in place would make the consequences a little more, uh, you, you know, a little more hefty. Dr. I mean, o- assuming that your parents have semi-automatic weapons, like, you know, <laughs> So yeah, and, and it's interesting to me that it, it's typically people who live at home with their parents that do these mass shootings. Dr. Oleka? Well, I think you're both touching on something that is really important. Obviously, I think as Americans, we grieve with these families in, in all the kinds of ways that they're experiencing loss and trauma. People forget, even if you don't lose your life or lose someone, if you were around a gun shooting, the trauma is with you forever. I think Dominique brings up the interesting point, though, here that becomes challenging to make federal policy. There are a lot more law-abiding gun owners than gun owners who do not abide by the law. So it makes it difficult to pass federal legislation that might be popular, but would infringe upon the rights of people who are doing the right thing. I think what you can do, though, uh, is a few steps. One, we've got to figure out a way to get law enforcement better trained to handle these situations. In too many of these settings, we've just seen law enforcement not do the right thing. I think that's got to be an aspect of this. Uh, Secondarily, I think we do need to figure out how to get guns out of the hands of bad guys. Uh, To use a a phrase, I think it's very clear that there are certain particular people uh, who have decided to use weapons to kill people. Obviously, we need to stop that, which leads into the third thing that I think gets to the root cause of this that we aren't talking about in a deep and detailed way. 
We talk about these killers the day that they kill somebody and we make them monsters publicly, which is the right thing to do. That's what they are. But the day before, they were just regular people. In most cases, they were young men who had no purpose, who had no employment, who were listless. Those are tens of thousands of people across this country who at any point could be a mass shooter, but I think more importantly, aren't contributing to society. If we can figure out ways, if it's a federal grant, to incentivize centers to figure out how we're going to get these young men back on track in society, that could root out a lot of the issues where they then become radicalized somehow, if it's online or some hate group or whatever. Now we don't have this issue that we do uh, to the extent that we have. I think that's the way to approach it at the federal level. Well, Dr. Oleka, we spend millions, if not billions of dollars in police training and in our law for our law enforcement. And I always find it interesting to for people to say we need better training in the police. Like how bad is the police training? Just how bad is it? And if it's that bad, why are these police officers even uh, on at work? Like why are what where does the lack of police training fit into all of this? I'm I never understand why people say police need better training as if the training that they have that exists is horrific, but we're still utilizing law enforcement. And why do we need more money for more training? It's just confusing to me in that way. And there are plenty of programs, grants, state, federal programs already that help uh, people who are in need of options for employment. So I don't know. And how do you pick out somebody who may be a mass shooter tomorrow and tell them the day before, hey, come join this program? <laughs> well, I think I think it'd be a little bit more detailed than that. But let me try to address each of your comments. With law enforcement, I don't think it's necessarily more money so much as it is just better training. And what I mean by that specifically is you saw what happened in uh, the shooting in Texas. Law enforcement explicitly just did not follow the steps and the protocols with regard to what you're supposed to do for a mass shooting in a school. So, there see, have been steps but, but, but Dr. Oleka, that's not training. That's that's the lack of execution of the training because they were trained on how uh, uh, to handle mass shootings. They were trained on that specifically. So it's the lack of the execution because it's very difficult to be trained and then that training be put into action. That's when you don't know what the hell you gonna do. Exactly, Tammy. That's because nobody knows how they're gonna respond in a mass shooting. That's a very stressful situation that you wouldn't have uh, experienced prior. And, um, and, and I don't think it's a training issue. And I feel like with these shooters, it's, it's, it's the AR-15 and uh, there's no profile. There used to be a profile. Dr. Like you say these people are listeners without a job, whether you Uvalde shooter worked at Wendy's 40 hours a week. He had a job. You know, we can't look at these shooters and say there was a time we'd be like, oh, the sh mass shooters are white. The one in uh, uh, the hospital was a black guy and he was married. We'd say, oh, they were in sale. This guy was married. He had called his wife right before he shot up the hospital. So th there's no look. There's no look, there's no one way, there's no one size fits all. Everybody's going crazy right now. And not to say they have mental illness because a lot of times that's an excuse, but there needs to be something done with these AR-15s, these assault rifles specifically. And I don't think anybody, if you can't buy beer, you should not be able to buy an assault rifle. And people say, oh, well, 18, you can go into the military. Well, yeah, but they check their weapons in before they go to bed in the military every evening. They don't go to sleep with these weapons. So it's, it's, a, it's a false argument. These AR-15s need to be taken out of the hands of, in my opinion, everyone. I thought it the saddest thing about the Uvalde shooting, 
mass shooting was that the parents had to use DNA to identify the children because uh, you you couldn't recognize them because they were shot with an assault rifle. It. Yeah, I mean, to double down on that point there, I mean, the horror of of watching police in action while your child could have potentially been um, still alive or in need of, of life-saving treatment, you know, just prayers go out to that, those families and, and certainly those impacted in uh, Buffalo and, and some of the other shootings as well. Um, you know, I think Alicia was spot on. You can't predict who is going to have a snap or, uh, you know, a bad episode and go out. What is clear is that the now that what is now too common, the occurrence of going out and mass creating a mass shooting is a thing. So if you're troubled, that's in your mind and you're going to want to do that. Um, and we're seeing that it, it's it's sort of a copy and paste. Alicia's point is right on. There are different types of guns and the Second Amendment does allow you the right to bear arms, but there are different types of guns. In this case, there are uh, uh, large round capacity assault rifles that for really no real legitimate purpose. I mean, I get the gun collector, I get the need to want to protect yourself, but what we're now seeing is a, is a trend um, in shooters creating mass homicides. And if we want to stop that, to Alicia's point, that weapon has to come off the streets because it's that weapon is that's creating the mass homicides. We may drop down and have you know someone coming in with revolvers, that sort of thing. But but I think if we want to start to limit some of these these, these high casualty events, we need to get rid of the assault rifles. Let's talk about body armor then. Do we need to get rid of body armor? Because look, actually, maybe maybe everybody, maybe that's what we need in the schools, body armor. Maybe that's what we need. Maybe not get rid of body armor, but let's, before we dress, dress our kids like we put the coats on them for the winter, perhaps we should put body armor on them and just let them walk in the class. That sounds like a Herschel Walker, Donald Trump resolution. <laughs> Dominique. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that really terrible, horrible, bad idea that you just had, Tammy Mack. Let's not forget about the headshot. Actually, to some extent, I do agree with what Dr. Oleka is saying. Rather than putting more money into police and police training, because the FBI did train those Texas cops and they didn't adhere to the training, uh, maybe we need to put the money into things that do keep us safe, like more counselors on school campuses, like more um, support. The old fashioned security guard that they had at the school campus back in the day that knew every kid. If you have enough counselors like what kids have in a private school, they know what's going on with every single kid. So they're the ones that would be able to find that kid before they went ballistic. That's not going to help, though, with a supermarket. It's not going to help with a hospital. So we're going to have to do something not just about the guns, but the gun culture, our glorification of violence and our worship of violence as solutions to all of our problems as Americans. And, and do you all remember when Charlton Heston held up that rifle and said, for my cold, dead hands? If that was the gun we were talking about right now, the one he held up, it would be a different day. A lot less carnage happened with that particular gun. And we're not trying to take all of your guns. That's never been what anybody's proposing. We're saying that that gun that Charlton held up was a lot less dangerous than the, what's going on today. Well, these commercials won't be dangerous at all. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack. And the Business of Being Black today is a round of the political and trending highlights of the week. Please welcome my Friday co-host, activist and radio personality, Dominique DePrima, political analyst, Ed Sanders, comedian and filmmaker, Alicia Cooper, and the president, 
and founder of Oleka Management Consulting, Dr. O.J. Oleka. Well, we were talking about gun control in the last segment, but this segment moves on to possible solutions with gun control. It looks like Herschel Walker has a solution to end school shootings. Watch this. See, there is a person willing that weapon. You know, Cain, Kia, Abel. You know, and uh, you know, and that's the problem that we have. And I said, what we need to do is look into how we can stop those things. You know, he talked about doing a disinformation. What about getting a department that can look at young men that's looking at uh, women that's looking at uh, just social media? What about doing that? Looking into things like that, and we can stop that that way. But yet they want to just continue to talk about taking away your constitutional rights and. And I, I think there's more thing we need to look into. This has been happening for years, and the way we stop it, by putting money into the mental health field, by putting money into uh, other departments rather than departments that want to take away your rights. Well, I think Herschel Walker himself was doing a disinformation. Uh, <laughs> Alicia, how do we feel about uh, these solutions? I, I don't really like that solution talking about rounding up men who are looking at women online. They about to get my daddy caught up in a dragnet. This man <laughs> sounds crazy. <laughs> and anybody who would vote for him is crazy. None of that was even coherent. I just can't. I can't. Dominique, can you? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> I, I, that is what you want in the U.S. Senate. Um, I, you know, I, I can't think of anything nice to say. So Mama said, don't say anything at all. Don't say anything at all. Ed, will you say anything at all? Yeah, I'm going to tear him up a little bit. I mean, you know, first things first, his response sounds like he is uh, a big spending program. You know, he sounds more like uh, what I think OJ would call a big spending Democrat than, than a Republican by offering up more funding for programs. But, you know, the bigger sense here is, is what the Republican Party has put forward in a candidate and how insulting it is to the African-American community across this country. Uh, you know, it's really clear that, that, that Herschel is not prepared to be uh, in the U.S. Senate. He's not prepared to be governor. He's not prepared to be uh, to hold elective office. But to watch the Republican Party coalesce around him and put him forward um, really is insulting to, to me. I take it as an insult. Mm, he's not prepared to be a street crossing guard. Uh, Dr. Oleka. Well, I think, and I've never met uh, Herschel Walker. I cannot speak for him. Uh, I think what he was- Well, he cannot speak for him either. So the two of you have something in common. <laughs> I think what he was attempting to mention, and Alicia mentioned this earlier, this uh, incel community, as it's called, involuntarily celibate. It's a group of men across the world who are effectively angry that uh, they can't have relations with a woman. And what we have found based on the research, and the FBI has done this in different federal agencies, is that a lot of those folks become violent and they become violent against women specifically. They talk online in social media groups and they decide that they become radicalized and commit violence. That is a problem. That's the kind of thing that I think you can focus on. Again, we talked about root causes earlier, uh, looking at those folks in particular to get them on a different path where they feel like they can have purpose and also where they can begin to value other people equally. When it comes to Herschel Walker as a candidate, the people of Georgia will decide who they want to send to the United States Senate. I've got a job for you, Dr. Oleka. You can be the Herschel Walker translator and just give, you know, solid, sensible points to whatever babble he's actually saying. I think you could make a lot of money there. All of your points, Dr. Oleka, uh, were well taken. The, the only problem is that I believe his question had to do with school shootings and he just kind of wiggled his way out of that. So, uh, yeah. 
Not yeah, sure. Because he, he has no solutions. But, so that's what but they you're right. The state of Georgia will make that decision. And so it's going to be interesting to see exactly what the state of Georgia what decision they will make. Well, it looks like it's official. Tough economic times are ahead of us. Man, J.P. Morgan Chase, CEO, um, stated that uh, Hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. President Biden informed Americans to get used to the higher prices. The idea we're going to be able to click a switch, bring down the cost of gasoline is not likely in the near term, nor is it with regard to food. In other words... This how much the ish going to cost. Live with it. Dominique? Yeah, I mean, um, that's probably true. It's baffling that you would say that right in the middle of midterm elections. Um, and, and as Ed alluded to, you know, earlier, or, or maybe it was on a different show, this is not typical like inflation. We're dealing with post-pandemic realities. We're dealing with supply chain issues, a war uh, in Ukraine and, and many other exacerbating factors. But J.P. Morgan Chase is not the only one. We've been hearing from lots of economists that we are heading for tough economic times, not just inflation, uh, recession, genuine recession, cash is king. Um, th there was an article in the LA Daily News saying, if you wanna take money out of your house, do it now, because they're gonna start tightening credit more and more, and you might not have access to that capital. I think we have to just watch your spending and, and prepare for hard times. Yeah, I went to a fast food restaurant the other day, got a chicken sandwich and some French fries for $15. Fifteen dollars. I was like, "Can you put it in my hand?" You know, I, I, I mean, this was just I, uh, uh, Alicia. Yeah, my cousin called me yesterday. She said the laundry room in her building went up fifty cent more for wash and fifty cent more for dry. This is getting ridiculous. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> he's got to start sending out some more stimulus checks if that's what he's going to say because this is ab absolutely ridiculous. People are drowning. Yeah, the fact that there's nothing he can do about it. I mean, he is, basically says, nothing I can do about it, folks. Sorry. My bad. Hunker down. Hunker, hunker down. <laughs> Light your fire. Most... Cook you some marshmallow <laughs> s'mores. Uh, Ed, go ahead. I think that's the most troubling aspect of it. I mean, you know, I think, you know, we would look to the president to, to, to show us a path forward, to give us, you know, a target to, to move towards. Um, my hope is in the coming days that that you know he has an economic plan that he could put forward before the the country. Um, to Dominique's point about midterms, you know that that's what will bring people back to the Democratic Party, make people energized, is when you start to have a clear path. Okay, this is how we're going to address this problem. We've seen recessions before in this country. There's, you know, this is it's an up and down economy, um, but we've seen the causes of this, right? You know, coming out of COVID. Uh, you know, certainly the, the the Ukrainian conflict is causing turmoil in the economic market. Um, we can get through this. We just need our leadership to show us how and point us in the right direction. Yeah. Uh, why are you laughing, no. Dr. Oleka? Well, because Ed said things that are going to be impossible to make happen. Our leadership to get us through this, it was our leadership who put us in this position to begin with. It was the Joe Biden energy policies when he first came into office that directly led to an increase in gas prices. Gas started to go up four months before the war in Ukraine even happened. It was the Joe Biden uh, policy and the Democrats who pushed forward the American Rescue Plan that injected billions of dollars into the economy of stimulus that was not needed. Democrat economists said this. They said it will lead to inflation, which will lead to recession. These were the Democrats telling the Democrats 
don't do Democrat things. And they did it anyway. And so now you have the president making one of the weakest statements he's made in his presidency, which says a lot, which is basically, sorry, I can't do anything. So if I'm a voter, I'm going to go to the polls and say, my president told me he can't fix it. His party can't fix it because they created these problems. Why in the world would I ever vote for a Democrat in November when I don't have baby formula, gas costs too much, the supply chain's a mess, and it's all because of what the Democrats did. If you are a smart, reasonable voter, you should vote Republican just to get somebody else to know to give a shot of leadership. Yeah, and my chicken. I got to take a little underage with that. Go ahead, Ed. I, you know, and and in everything, I think that that OJ is laying out. You know, there's there are some points. Um, you know, if you're going to draw the distinction between the parties, I think one of the key elements is is which party invests in people. Right. And, you know, we know one solution. The Republican Party is going to push for tax cuts. And even in these hard times, they're going to put you out in the street with no resources to, to help you at all. Uh, you know, ultimately, if you're going to the polls in this in this midterm election, you're electing a congressperson, um, someone that can go to Washington to speak on your behalf. And, and, you know, in that regard, they're always going to be sort of two clear choices between the parties, one that is going to advocate for the rich and one that's going to advocate for the working people. If the president needs to be guided, he can be guided by Democratic uh, elected in the, in the House of Representatives. And, and that's what we hope to see. Well, maybe black people can get some relief. I don't know about everybody else because California is talking about reparation and we're going to talk about it next on Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I am Tammy Mack. The Reparations California Task Force released a 500-page report detailing over 150 years of harm inflicted on African Americans in California and across the nation due to the ongoing legacy of slavery and systemic discrimination. I, I've always wondered, like, why we got to research? Why we got to research that? We all know that exists. We all know it's there. Uh, the interim report covers the immediate impact of enslavement, as well as the effects of decades of political neglect, finding that there has been sustained damage to generations of Black Americans. What should African Americans be expected to prove they are eligible to receive reparations when no other race has had to do so? Dr. Oleka? Well, I've said on this show before and in many different places, I do not love reparations as a policy, especially at the federal level. I think that would be disastrous. I am curious from an intellectual standpoint to see what California comes up with. But I think this is part of the challenge that you see is that you're going to have to prove why you deserve a government-based program. That's what happens with other government-based programs. You have to demonstrate the need to use public dollars. I think what could be interesting from this report though, again, is to figure out exactly what those exact costs were and what that through line was. You mentioned, uh, Tammy Mack, that we obviously know that there was a tremendous impact slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, at, at least with the, the folks talking here, that's not up for debate. But I think what could be beneficial is to figure out the exact cost, what that did to impact the black community and specifically where, again, was it education related? Was it property related in terms of uh, capital that could be built? And then you could potentially take some of that information to different states, different communities and build different policies, probably not reparations, that would be my choice to do something different but different policies to directly attack what those issues are. I think that could be uh, pretty valuable stuff there. Yeah, well, the task force decided in March that eligibility for compensation would be based on lineage and limited to the descendants of enslaved and free Black people who lived in the country before the 19th century. Dominique? Yeah, I got in trouble with certain folks um, for saying that I don't agree with that because I don't think it 
for me, the possibility that deserving people would be left out is more pressing than the possibility that an immigrant like, say, Dr. Oleka might accidentally get some reparations that he doesn't want anyway. Um, so I don't think that that should be a requirement. I could see, though, uh, tiers where you, if you can prove your descendancy um, or, you know, prove that you are a resident during that period, maybe you, you get uh, priority or you get bigger consideration. I do think... I have a friend, um, Mr. Ron Wakabayashi, who was part of the team of Japanese Americans who won reparations for Japanese uh, Americans. And one of the things he told me, Tammy, is that these kinds of studies and hearings and reports really make a bigger difference for people that don't follow reparations, maybe people who aren't even of African descent, so they can understand the impact. 12 generations of our ancestors worked without pay. That is why America is the rich and powerful country that it is today. So it's not a government handout. It's giving us the piece of the pie, a tiny piece of the pie that we built into a giant superpower. And then, of course, Jim Crow, not just Jim Crow and discrimination, but the seizure, the illegal seizure uh, of Black wealth, uh, the rioting where Black businesses and homes were burnt to the ground, all of these things that have impacted um, our community and created the disparities that we see today. Right. Dr. Oleka, not an immigrant himself, but the son of an immigrant. Of right. Nigeria. He wouldn't be eligible. Yeah. According uh, to California. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Oleka, curious, do you believe that Japanese Native Americans should have gotten reparations? When you say Japanese Native Americans, do you mean from uh, the those who were interned in World War yes. II? Yes. Yes, and I think there is a specific difference there in the sense that the government decided that Japanese Americans, people who were citizens here, should be uh, made to be incarcerated based on what a foreign government did on American soil. It was a direct act of government in a situation of war uh, that was wrong and really made absolutely no sense. Obviously, slavery, chattel slavery specifically, makes no sense. I think what Dominique is pointing to, though, creates the difficulty in determining who should have access to reparations if we're talking about that scale. With Japanese internment, again, it was in the 1940s. It's a, it's a specific time frame that, that was within the last 100 years. You can find those people directly. What California is attempting to do, I think, is to be very specific about what that grouping could be. I think there could be benefit from the people themselves, because if you're able to trace your lineage back uh, to folks who came here, uh, who were enslaved and were brought here, uh, in the 1800s, I think there could be uh, some psychological beneficial healing to know exactly who uh, your folks were back in terms of the American generations. But I think that would be the, the difference between okay, Japanese. Okay, but Dr. Oleka, look, I, I agree with you. We need to trace our lineage. It's important to know our ancestors. And that's a beautiful thing that's happening here. But uh, you know what? I kind of feel like it's disingenuous for you as a person who's not of African-American descent to jump in and say, oh, well, it's good for Japanese people, but not for African-Americans. That's bull. The U.S. government profited tremendously from our enslavement. And we can have reparations on a federal, a state, a county, and a local level. And all of those are deserved because every one of those, as well as private institutions, made massive amounts of money off the blood and death and actual selling of our ancestors. Well, sure. I'm not disputing anything that you said in terms of the wealth that was built. And you and I agree on this in terms of how my perspective is different. I do think that's important to understand with this conversation. If you have this conversation with people who did immigrate here or if their parents recent or if their parents immigrated here, uh, but they were born here, as in my case, I think, though, the clear distinction, and that's the point that I want to make, 
with the folks who were interned who were Japanese was that this was a government response based on what a foreign nation did. Of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor, where the government decided based on what a foreign country did, we're going to round up people who have an ethnic similarity, sameness to that foreign country and put them in camps because we don't trust them. I think as a government action within the last hundred years, that's different. Again, it is not to at all disparage or limit the horrors of chattel slavery as we've been discussing here and we agree upon. I think there is a different kind of solution that would be more accepting, I think, to the American people. Now, look, in California, that might be different. California is going to figure it out for their state. I don't give a rat's behind what's accepting the American people. We have to do what's right and just. And I'm not just talking about myself. I can trace. I have a picture of my great great grandmother who was freed from slavery as a teenager. So I'm not talking about just my heritage. I'm talking about all of us and what's for the greater good and justice for black people in this country. Yeah, let's uh, let, let's move on. Let's move on and uh, talk talk about something a little more light here. Uh, <laughs> on the recent episode of the Red Table Talk, Jada Pinkett Smith not only talked about her struggle with alopecia, but she addressed the Oscar slap. And here's a clip. My deepest hope is that these two intelligent, capable men have an opportunity to heal, talk this out, and reconcile. Alicia. Yeah, I just wish that the day that this happened, you guys remember when um, when uh, Kanye jumped up on stage when Taylor Swift was getting an award and he said, I'm going to let you finish. Beyonce had the best album of all time. And Beyonce was in the audience going, no, Kanye, which lets you know that she wasn't complicit in this and she didn't think this was right and shouldn't be happening in that moment. I just wish that when she saw him going up to that stage, she tried to stop him in some sort of way. No will a hand gesture, something. Because sitting there perched up like that just doesn't comport with the message that's happening right now. It was a bad look. And to be sitting there smiling and uh, when he sits back down looking like, yeah, baby, you did it. You can't go from that to we need to heal. It feels disingenuous. That night when she saw that man going up, getting ready to ruin his career over a failed joke, she should have said something then. I have a different perspective of that. And everybody uh, seems to share the same sentiments that Jada was laughing while he did it. I believe firmly that Jada, along with the rest of everyone else in that room, thought it was a joke. And that's why she was laughing, because Will could have very well and Chris planned it secretly. It's the Oscars. They do bits and skits all of the time. So I do believe that when he walked up there, uh, Jada herself probably thought, mm, what, what do they got going on? What is going on? I mean, I, no one in the room knew that it was real until Will Smith cursed Chris Rock. I didn't even right. think the slap was real. Right. I had to rewind it over and over again because even that looked fake. So we're going to talk about it more when we return. We got to take a quick break and come right back and let the rest of our panel weigh in on this Will Smith, Chris Rock, Jada Pinkett slap that seems to never go away. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. We'll be back on Business of Being Black with Tammy Max. Stick around. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack. The Business of Being Black today are the political and trending highlights of the week with my Friday co-host, Dominique DePrima. Alicia Cooper is here. Ed Sanders on deck and Dr. O.J. Oleka. We're talking about uh, Jada Pinkett's statements on the Chris Rock, Will Smith slap scandal that rocked 
the world. Alicia, uh, you were talking about how uh, Jada watched her husband go up there and slap the man as opposed to stopping him and saving his career. And I said, I think uh, she thought that it was a joke, just like everyone else in the building. Yeah, but up until he started cursing angrily because everybody was like, is this real? Until the cursing. I think in that moment, we all realized that this was not staged. And even then, I didn't see anything from her that said, oh, I wish he hadn't done that. I did did see a photograph. I saw an, I saw a a, a photograph of her calming him down and it, I can't, you know, I can't pretend to know what she was saying, but she looked extremely concerned and shocked about what had happened as she grabbed his arm as if to say, Oh my God, what's going on with you? So I did see that photo. I think Jada's getting a raw deal on this whole situation. Dominique. You know, it's so hard to know what, happens behind the scenes or what happens in the minds of people. But when I saw the clip, I I have to admit, I thought, is she running for office? Because it seemed like damage control to me. Um, I do hope that they work it out. I do hope that Will gets whatever it is that he needs, because clearly he has been under a lot of pressure for a long time. But, you know, you just don't get to hit people. And, and, uh, you know, and that's all I can say about it. I, I feel bad for everybody involved. Um, I and understand also, why. But. but with the whole healing thing, what would have been nice is the following day for Will and Jada to call that man and apologize. That's how you start healing. Well, you can only apologize if you are apologetic, if that's how you feel. <laughs> Right. right. But at least right. sit down and have a powwow. You know what I mean? As black people, let's get together. Let's have a little diplom- uh, diplomacy here and see what we can come up with. I think that that would have been a good example for all of us. Well, look, we're not kids and uh, America is America. And Will Smith and, and, and Chris Rock are not the end all be all to uh, <laughs> stealing deals and, and, and creating some type of respect of American culture. Uh, I, if you mad, you mad. I'm sorry. They're human. If you mad, you mad. And if Chris Rock is mad because that man slapped him, let him be mad. And if Will Smith was mad because that man made a joke about his wife, let him be mad. But there has to be some time between like, you can't just the next day be like, I'm sorry, and then show up near body kumbaya in the sunset. You cannot do that if the anger is still there and what you have to yeah. say is not real. And that's what you're talking about right now, Dominique, when you say it, uh, uh, what Jada said just kind of looked like damage control. It didn't seem authentic. And yeah. most people online were saying it didn't seem authentic, which I think is why Will nor Chris have said anything because they don't know what's what right now. And I think they want to be authentic. Dave Chappelle said something. He said that for the first time in Will Smith's life, he took off his mask. And Dave Chappelle said, I want him to never put it back on because now he can be free. It? You know, I think what troubled me about the the clip was this, this separation between she and Will, that somehow the problem is between just Chris and just Will to work out and you know, it just it. She's as central to the conflict as as they are. Um, the conflict is about her, and so it really is. To Alicia's point, Will and Jada finding a way to to patch this up with Chris in a public manner. But but to make that statement and sort of put it on you know Will and 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 Chris to go and have to figure themselves out. You know, it just 
it rubs me the wrong yeah, way. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people thought that she treated them both as if they were strangers. I just really hope these two men can get together and work it out. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that was problematic for a lot. Let's stick yeah. around for some more entertainment right now. Over the weekend during a concert in Detroit, Monique delivered a Ooh, hellacious opening monologue where she told the audience that she was supposed to be the headliner and not D.L. Hughley. Um, Monique made claims that D.L. Hughley refused to perform at the event if she was the headliner. So what do you think about this story? Who was at fault? Uh, I, <laughs> Dr. Oleka, let's let's roll with you. Well, it's hard to say who's at fault here. I don't know if this was uh, a comic just thought they were funnier. And as a result, they wanted to be the lead. And, and because they didn't get the opportunity to, they refused to perform. But I, I think these two stories do go together. I don't like the idea of prominent black figures not being able to figure out whatever the issue is behind the scenes and then blaming one another in public. I mean, yeah, obviously, Will Smith, Chris Rock, Monique D.L. Hughley, they aren't uh, the folks that we're looking at to lead the way in terms of how our, our kids should behave. But these are prominent black faces and figures. And if they aren't able to work out their differences as professionals behind the scenes, I, I think it's a bad look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I respect both artists. You know, I think I, I follow DL's uh, social media and, and and see a lot of thoughtful posts from him. Um, you know, I kind of look at this from the other side of it, which is sort of the producer of the event. You know, these sorts of things on who's the headliner and and the order of of appearance at an event are, are really spelled out by the event promoter. Um, I know there was some release of documents that I really haven't tracked, but somewhere in there, there is, you know, the discrepancy. And if it it, it seems to me, it sort of flows back to the promoter uh, of the event uh, as to where this comes from. Of course. Dominique? Yeah, well, you know, D.L. Hughley is on the station that I um, work on, and I've worked with Monique in the past with uh, Steve Harvey, and I love both of them very much. I agree with um, O.J. It's terrible to see this in public. She has a right to stand up for herself as a woman. He has a right to not be personally insulted. And what I hate, I see like I feel like Monique is just starting to make a comeback and there's some self-sabotage here. And it's the same thing with Will, his shining moment. He's getting best actor Oscar and he sort of ruins the moment for himself, mask or no mask. I hate to see that self-destructive element um, for any performer of that caliber at that level. Good point. Um, I think in the last post, because the posts were going back and forth. I mean, I had my popcorn. I was watching it all. Um, but, so I could tell you about all of the contracts. It, uh, But the, the most recent post, which was the last and the latest from Monique, she said whether she had gone first or last, she was going to light DL up. Just in case you wanted to know. Alicia? Yeah, I knew I, I, when I saw the video, I said, oh, it didn't matter where she went. She was going to get him because that it was very um, personal. It was extremely personal. Yeah, the, yeah, that that wasn't the thing that comes from I'm not able to close. You know, that that felt guttural. That was from the toes to the esophagus. So I knew that it didn't matter where she went in the lineup. She was going to get him. And um, as somebody who's been doing this 22 years, what I felt from the situation, I felt sexism. I felt uh, a sexism from the part of D.L. Hughley. They're both extremely talented performers. Their acts are in no way similar. But I know that a lot of times there's a a discrepancy in who's going to go last. And when it's men, they work it out. When they did that, uh, the comedy get down, it was a bunch of guys, only males, because a lot of these tours are only males. 
And Cedric the Entertainer closed. D.L. Hughley didn't close. So it's like, I feel like when it's a woman, is it becomes a, I can't go, I don't want to go after this female. I'm a male. And I felt this implicit sexism, which was the, why, could, why couldn't y'all have a discussion? And why couldn't she close? Why does it have to be a, I'm the closer? Both of y'all are headliners. Both of y'all been doing comedy over 30 years. And I don't agree with when he said she showed up trying to force his hand so that she'd have to go last. Her run of show showed her going last. So she felt like she showed up 40 minutes early. So it was just a whole lot going back and forth. Uh, we still have not heard from the promoter because I would love to hear his side of what happened, how both of them have contracts that say they're the closer. There can only be one opener and there can only be one closer. Right. So that made absolutely no sense. And um, yeah, this is a this is a relationship that I don't see ever uh, being mended Never. because of the way that it was handled. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, but that's the nature of stand up comedy. You know, that's why people do stand up. There's no human resources department and you can go out and do whatever you want to do. And that's what Monique did. Yeah. Um, important to note, there were two other comedians who op actually opened the show. Uh, Joshua, I can't think of his last name, but I, I, Ida Rodriguez as well, uh, who opened that show. And uh, listen, Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight uh, were both in concert. They're both headliners, just like Monique and DL, both headliners. My commercial's headlining now. Welcome back to Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack. I'm Tammy Mack and the Business of Being Black today, political and trending highlights of the week. WNBA's Brittany Griner is now able to communicate with her friends and family via email during her detainment in Russia. The process hasn't been easy. Uh, reportedly, emails are printed out and delivered sporadically in bunches to Griner as she doesn't have access to the actual email account. Reiner will then either write a response on paper and her lawyers will take a photo of it or she'll verbalize a response if she doesn't have paper. What are your thoughts about this ongoing story and should uh, Brittany Griner be home by now, Dr. Oleka? Yes. I mean, that's my only comment on this story is that she should be home by now. I, I get very concerned. We've got American nationals in a country that is at war with a country that we are supporting can't say that we are at war directly with Russia, but obviously we're supporting the Ukraine. I just get concerned about how these American nationals, our citizens, become collateral damage. We need to get her home as soon as we can, and I'm upset that it's taken as long as it has. Yeah, Ed? I agree, and I, and I, and I agree that, uh, and, and would further that, you know, that the lack of conversation on the national level is, is disturbing. Um, you know, I, I consider her a, a POW at this point. Um, you know, it's very clear that, that within Russia, charges and a process of adjudicating those charges are not being laid out. She's just being held. Um, and if she's a POW, then, then we need to see more from this, uh, from this administration to get her back. I'm furious that the media won't make this uh, a main stage story. Alicia? Yeah, I think that the media has been told to lay low because I think Putin will get pissed off and be even more irate and keep her even longer out of spite. And she's already the trifecta. She's black. She's female. She's gay. You know, it's a whole lot going on there. And I was told that she says she's not going to go back and play for Russia after this experience. And so that's going to hurt them, too. I, I, after this, I would never even visit Russia. I just the whole thing is just one big turn off. She should have been home by now. Even when the guys got caught stealing in China, they weren't they, they got to come home. So um, it's just very unfortunate. I watched the interview that her wife did, and um, it, it's just torturous for her and her family. And the not knowing has to be uh, just just 
I can't even imagine. It stresses me out. I watched that show Locked Up Abroad. I used to be sweating watching Locked Up Abroad in my living room. So I know I wouldn't survive. So just prayers out for, for Brittany Griner. Um, yeah, I think it's important to denote that it was President Trump who released uh, The Boys Who Stole uh, because of his relationship with the hierarchy there. And Not um, according to LeVar Ball. LeVar Ball said Trump had nothing to do with it. Trump had everything to do with it. I think we can we can conclude that. Uh, I don't think Joe Biden's relationship, our president, President Joe Biden's relationship, is as uh, is as friendly uh, with the Russian hierarchy. So we are having some problems, and we are in the middle, which is very important to note as well, in the middle of of this war with uh, with with Russia, Dominique. Yeah, I mean, free Brittany Griner. It's terrible. Um, and, you know, she at the same time, she's being saved by being a big star in Russia. She's also being uh, troubled because of being a U.S. citizen, a black woman, a gay woman um, in a time of war. And I, as a person, an air personality, it's like, I want to talk about it, but I don't want to endanger her release. I was happy to see that the Biden administration has now designated her as unlawfully detained. And so they are taking more aggressive measures and have brought in some hostage negotiators. So hopefully we'll see more results soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Look, uh, this is sad news. Master P's daughter, Tatiana Miller, sister to Romeo Miller, one of the hosts of The Mix here on Fox Soul, passed away. She was 29 years old. Master P shared the news over the Memorial holiday weekend. Uh, Cops suspect she died from a drug overdose, but they are working to determine exactly how. And an autopsy has been completed, but toxology results uh, will take about two weeks. And Master P has vowed to help others battling addiction. Our thoughts and prayers, certainly with the family. Um, uh, Alicia, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I just I was reading up on it and, and it's just it's just awful. Um, like you said, we're still waiting to find out exactly what the cause is. And it might have been opioid related. And these drugs just the pharmaceutical companies make so much money off these drugs. And these doctors push them because I think some of them get kickbacks. We've got to do something about where this country is going with this abuse. And a lot of this is just the stress of being an American. People are succumbing to any kind of vice. And we need mental health uh, back. They closed down all the mental health facilities we had growing up and, and just left the people on the streets. And this is sad for a country as uh, as wealthy as ours to really have neglected its, its mentally ill population the way it's had. And we've got to do something about the addiction situations. Dr. Oleka. I agree 100%. I mean, in Kentucky, we talk about this a lot, uh, addiction based on lifestyle and, and where you are and the lack of resources that you have for other things. Addiction to substances, particularly opioids, is a massive problem. And it's it's awful that Master P has to experience this. No parent should ever have to bury their child. Yeah, Ed. I, I mean, I agree with uh, OJ and Alicia. That the, the, the final point there is no parent should have to bury a child. Um, but but how we act as a country and, and how we react to this is is indicative of of really the type of country we're going to be. Uh, you know, this is a country that struggles to grapple with reality, and you know the stress of being in this country, surviving, drives some people to to drug use, um, coping, any number of causes. But what it really means is that people around people have to be more vigilant in in calling out and trying to seek help for others. Um, there's no, you know, one solution to this, but, but, you know, we have to be more attuned to it. Yeah. Dominique. 
I think all of us have family members or loved ones who have been touched by drug addiction and mental health. I know I have. It's really tough. You don't always know what to do. And I do think that we do need more resources. We need more uh, rehabs available to us. We need, yes, we have to deal with the pharmaceuticals and we have to deal with all of the policies and such, but on the ground, we need those resources. Imagine being someone born into a wealthy, powerful family like that of Master P and yet still you don't get the help that you need. So that means for everyday Americans, not to mention the homeless or unsheltered, the chances of dying uh, from opioids or fentanyl laced anything um, are just uh, increasing all the time. And I think we as families and loved ones of those in need really need more resources to help them. Yeah. And uh, if Master P says he's going to do something to help, uh, trust me, he's going to do something. He's going to go to work on this. Um, he has been in the community, not only in his home uh, state of Louisiana, but also in California. He's on the ground. Uh, I, I mean, this man really rides for the community and to, uh, to, to help us grow, to help the community financially. He believes in entrepreneurship. He believes in family. Uh, Master P is the quintessential, like when we talk about looking towards celebrities, I think he goes highly underestimated. He is one of the celebrities we should look to because Master P definitely wants nothing but the good for our community. So if he says he's going to now tackle uh, this drug usage in our community and beyond, he is going to do it if anybody is. Uh, in the last 12 months, let's turn our eyes to something, something positive. Let's end this Friday with something positive. In the last 12 months, eight NBA coaching jobs have been filled by black candidates. And for the first time, half the league's franchises, 15 of the 30 have black head coaches. Woo. What does this mean for black children who are finally able to see Black men on higher levels, I think it means absolutely everything, everything. Ed, you love sports. Look, you have to applaud it, um, you know, when you, especially when you put up the, the contradiction in the NFL. Um, and, you know, one. Well, let me ask a question before we get out of here. Will it ever mm -hmm. happen in the NFL? I need a yes or a no. Dr. Oleka? Yes. Ed? No. Dominique? Yes, if we force it. Ah, uh, uh. Alicia. 50% black head coaches in the NFL? No. <laughs> now we're supposed Dominique to end on positive. Dominique and Dr. Olaker, thank you for being positive. TGIF is next. Thanks for watching Business of Being Black with Tammy Mack on Fox Soul. <laughs>